Hello, and welcome to the Hidden Archives. I'm your host for the evening, Nicole Clark. We are absolutely delighted that you're joining us as we start our fourth season. We definitely want to thank all of our regular listeners for coming back, and we want to extend a warm welcome to anyone who is new to the show. On that note, if you are new, don't worry about listening to the previous episodes in any particular order. Though there are some recurring themes, nothing is sequential. However, this season might have some sequels to previous stories. When this happens, we will tell you at the start of the new episode which previous one to reference. Please be sure to follow, message, like, and rate us wherever you find our podcast. And follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hidden Archives Podcast, and on Twitter at Podcast Hidden. Just in the spirit of the season, we have come to Scott Cunningham to bring us these words of wisdom. Today, evil spirits are seen as negativity which floats around the earth in large quantities. Of course, the only negativity we strive for here is fictional. So if you are worried about any evil spirits that may lie ahead, we suggest you heed the following warning. If you choose to enter the hidden archives, if you choose to study the tomes, if you choose to take this journey with me, you do so at your own risk. Profanity and disturbing content will follow. This is your warning. Fear is one of the most basic of human instincts. However, it doesn't do anyone any good to just be afraid. Fear is a driver, something that is supposed to push you into action. Of course, it helps to know the difference between a legitimate fear and an irrational one. That being said, our story tonight can't discuss every fear, but it can give you a simple warning about one. Fear not the shadow, but that which cast it not. Where is the line between reality and the surreal? Is reality a set thing, or is it what we make of it? Can we convince someone or something? Can we convince ourselves that our experience, or someone else's, is the one true reality? Or is it something else? I never imagined that my own survival would hinge on such esoterics. But this is the position I have found myself in, and, except for what I'm about to tell you, I just have to go through my reality with a smile on my face, pretending that everything is fine until I finally can't take the charade anymore. But what then? Shakespeare once said that all the world's a stage, and all the men and women are merely players. If this is true, and if my time as a theater kid was worth anything, then that means there are rules. There are cues to hit at just the right time, lines that must be spoken, improvisations to be made when another player misses their cue. And the number one rule? The show must go on. Except for, in my case, the cost of the folly is death and erasure. But we all play the role. Unwittingly, to an extent, we always have. And mostly, we do it well. This act is built into our DNA. 
we are genetically predisposed to being good actors. You could say this is the reason why we have such complex social cues and interactions. We have an instinctual need to validate our other players, to make sure that people are just as invested in the play as we are. They have to be the right caliber. And when someone doesn't quite hold up, they're stigmatized. We keep them at a distance. We fear them. Incidentally, this is why we hate a bad liar, but worship a good one. A bad liar is a bad actor. Simple as that. And if you can't play the part right, you'll ruin the production for everyone. But a good liar? Well, those are our politicians and CEOs. People whose names we remember. People who we want on our side. Because if we stumble, we want a good actor to improvise a little bit and save the day. Just remember this next time you ask to speak to the manager. You are asking for a good liar to validate your own role. But why are we like this? You could say that it's just a result of our social evolution, that we need these social norms to survive and prosper. You could just leave it at that. Why question a good thing, right? Well, I want you to question it because you need to know what to do when these social instincts aren't enough. You need to know how to survive. I said we fear a bad liar. And fear is one of our most basic, most driving instincts. But I want you to know that it isn't the person we fear. It's actually what that person could be. What we actually fear, that most basic element, is something that appears to be human, but not quite. It's the uncanny valley. But at what point in our evolution did we need to fear something that is almost human? I think from the very beginning. From the very beginning of life on dry land, maybe. This fear isn't isolated to human beings, either. It's common for everything that's afraid of the dark. For everything that's occasionally startled by its own shadow, or the shadow of something else. You understand that no one is afraid of the dark, nor what the dark conceals. No one is afraid of their own shadow, either. All of these fears are one and the same. We fear what the shadow could be. The almost human nature of our own silhouette on the ground or wall. And as the light dims with the passing of day to night, our shadows grow with our anxieties until pitch black when no shadow can be distinguished, when no predator can be seen, when we finally retreat to the hiding places of our dreams and nightmares. When we sleep. Some belief systems suggest that when we sleep, our spirits wander another realm. Maybe for enlightenment, 
maybe for safety. I think this is as good of an explanation as any. After all, science still can't really say why we sleep. But my dad could explain it simply when he said that nothing good happens after midnight. All of this brings me to my recollection of the events that happened the night they say my brother killed his family. No one would ever call my brother Tom a violent person. They attributed his actions that night to some sort of sudden insanity. After all, what else would drive a beloved member of our town, a sheriff's deputy of all people, to commit the heinous acts that he did that full moon night in October? And why would I, the sole surviving witness who somehow wasn't victimized himself, testify on his behalf? It's simple. On that night, I couldn't see my brother's shadow. Fear not the shadow, but that which cast it not. This is our town motto. Everyone knows it, but no one really knows where it comes from or what it was originally supposed to mean. Some people say that it's a warning not to trust someone that appears to be too good to be true, someone with no real past, but rather to give a genuine person the benefit of the doubt. I mean, it makes sense. Our town is a small dot on the map in rural southern Colorado. It was founded during the westward expansion when there were lots of shady folks chasing gold or power or running out west away from their troubles. That's something that people had to fear back then. No one could afford to be swindled or taken advantage of. Most people were, and, well, still are, hard-working individuals just trying to eke out a humble existence. Many of the people to first set up shop in our little oasis figured that they had found providence among the pines on the plains. They had found the new Garden of Eden and displaced the local indigenous population to do so. But I think, no, I know our town motto is much more literal. When the indigenous people were pushed off their land when our town was founded nearly 150 years ago, they left us with a warning a warning that became our town motto. And when the settlers started chopping down the pines to make their homesteads, this warning was repeated with such frequency that it became part of our social DNA. Fear not the shadow, but that which cast it not. As the story goes, when the settlers started, well, settling in, they noticed some abnormalities in their neighbors. They weren't quite themselves. A local witch said that there was an ancient force, some sort of dark spirit that inhabited the land, and it was this force, a tree spirit, that was changing people's neighbors. You could recognize where the tree spirit had been by the dead pines amidst the live ones.
in these small patches of brown in an otherwise green forest, you could also see the power of the tree spirit. Something so great that it ripped the soul straight out of the boughs of the mighty timbers just by its presence and left them as withered and dry husk of what they should be. If the mighty tree spirit, this ancient juggernaut, could do this so easily and so carelessly to a great tree, then imagine what it could do to your family, friends, and neighbors. But the spirit wasn't malicious. It was something that just exists and thinks little more of us than we do of the spider we crush under our heel. The witch, fully aware of how this would sound to the people of that time, told this to her community anyway. Obviously, it was not received well. The townspeople agreed that something should be done about the witch and her heresy, so they band together to bring her to justice. However, they had almost burned her at the stake when she repeated the warning. Fear not the shadow, but that which cast it not. In grade school, that's where the story ends. The so-called witch reminds the town folk that they shouldn't judge her because she was, obviously, hiding nothing. But one look at the town records tells a different story. It tells the whole story. When the witch said this, Fear not the shadow, but that which cast it not, as she was being tied to the stake, the town chaplain happened to notice the shadow of the witch in the firelight. But when he observed the crowd and himself, he noticed an anomaly. Not everyone was casting a shadow. There was one in attendance who might have otherwise been overlooked, who had no shadow. It was a local woman who was tending her garden at the time. In the middle of the night, in the cold of October, when no garden plants would grow, the chaplain realizing the warning and realizing what the woman was actually doing in her garden, turned back to the witch, who had noticed the same thing and made eye contact. They could see the horror in each other's eyes. Instinctually, they both knew they had to carry on like nothing else was happening. They had to pretend they hadn't seen a woman with no shadow burying her infant twins in the near-frozen earth and muttering about turnips. Thinking quickly, the chaplain turned to the crowd and pleaded that they remember not only the warning, but also the words of Jesus, that he who is without sin should cast the first stone. With that, the crowd realized their lack of compassion and set the witch free. She later married the chaplain, they had a family, and it's a happy ending to the story, right? But what about the woman in the garden? Well, they ignored it. Simply put, they moved on and forgot about it. 
After all, they had a part to play. The same part that I'm playing now, and the same one I played when I watched my brother kill his family. But I think the charade has to end. I need to tell you what I witnessed, because if a predator is respected, even an ancient dark spirit, then it may be less likely to attack again. I had gone over to my brother's house that night because my sister-in-law had called me. I could tell that she was trying to hide the panic in her voice. There was a false cheeriness that I could just barely make out. She asked me to come over and have dinner with them. This wasn't a strange request in and of itself, except for the fact that my brother was always the one to invite me over. My sister-in-law barely ever texted me, let alone called. Oh, and it was nearly two in the morning. Obviously, I knew something was terribly wrong. I could hear my brother in the background of the phone call. From what I could make out, he kept talking about preheating the fridge and focusing the oven. Nothing that made any sense. My sister-in-law was playing along, though. She put her hand over the phone microphone a few times to address my brother. But again, I could hear disguised panic in her voice. So I played along, just in case Tom could hear, and said dinner sounded great. I was absolutely famished, and I would be right over. I was being sincere when I told her this. However, I didn't leave my house until I had made sure that my dart gun was loaded and placed inside my Department of Fish and Game Chevy Blazer. Obviously, I didn't want to hurt my brother. I knew that he occasionally took sleeping pills to deal with his unpredictable schedule. And it was probably just a weird side effect that he was suffering. But my first thought was for my nephew and sister-in-law. I had to protect them at all cost, and I would have to deal with my brother in whatever way seemed necessary. So I also brought a loaded forty-five that I had tucked into my belt beneath my shirt. Normally, the drive from my place to my brother's would take about twenty minutes, but I knew I didn't have that kind of time. I simply put the pedal down and threw caution to the wind. However, to this day, almost a year later, I wish that I would have driven faster and gotten there sooner. Maybe I could have done something more. But that's just not what happened. I arrived and pulled directly into the driveway. I think I only shut off the truck because I figured I would need my keys to enter my brother's house. Even so, something compelled me to knock first. I knew I had to play the part. So I quickly rapped on the door to the tune of Shave and a Haircut and waited patiently for two bits before my brother opened it. As soon as I could see his eyes, God damn those eyes, I knew he wasn't himself. He was empty. He was gone. I mean... It was his body, 
but something else was piloting it. His once sparkling blue eyes were clouded gray, and a sparkle of garnet hid behind his pupils. His smile was also too warm, too wide, and his jaw just hung too far open showing more than just his teeth. I swear you could see right to his throat with strings of thick spittle lined up like toothpicks from his lower teeth to his upper. This wasn't drugs or sleepwalking. It wasn't some hallucination or temporary insanity. It was something ancient, something hungry, and something that is darkness itself. I was staring at an incomprehensible horror that was somehow familiar. I had finally seen what my sister-in-law had, and it was all I could do to follow her lead and play the part. Tom gestured for me to enter, bowing way too low as he held the door open for me with his left hand and crossed his right hand in front of him, palm up, and all fingers extended pointing down the entryway and into the kitchen. I did as I was expected, crossed the threshold, passed in front of my not-brother, and made my way into the kitchen. My sister-in-law sat at the table, smiling brightly as she greeted me with a glass of wine in one trembling hand and tears sparkling in the corners of her eyes. Behind her glasses, in those eyes, I saw the culmination of every fear that humankind has reason to hold on to. She was silently begging for help, which she knew I couldn't give, all the while trying to make small talk and, every so often, glancing towards the bathroom at the end of the hall. I reasoned that, somehow, she had gotten my nephew to hold himself up in the bathroom. But how long could a six-year-old stay quiet and concealed? We both knew that time was a factor. I had to jump into action, but needed a plan first. That's when I noticed it. The only lights on were the kitchen lights. These bright, recess-style, overhead motherfuckers. Perfect for casting shadows in six different directions, depending on where you're standing. I only noticed because my sister-in-law was starting to tremble so hard that she splashed some wine onto the floor. I bent down to try and clean it up and noticed that my brother, who was standing over the kitchen sink with his back to us sharpening a large knife, had no shadow. I could see the shadow of the knife going every which way as he pulled it across the sharpening rod. Yet he cast none himself. It was then that I did something stupid and tried to subtly point this out to my sister-in-law. When she realized it, she yelped audibly. This caused Tom to whip around and loudly exclaim that I should help him in the pantry. Simultaneously, he started marching down the hallway towards the bathroom. So I got up and went after him. I wanted to reach for the gun in my belt, wanted to tell my sister-in-law to go out to my truck and grab the dark gun from the passenger seat. 
but what I wanted and what I did were two different things. Again, my only thought at that moment was for the safety of my nephew, so I sprang up from the kitchen floor that I had been wiping and took chase after my brother. Not wanting to know what would happen if I broke character, I told Tom that I'd get what he needed out of the, quote, pantry, which was actually the hall bathroom, and that he should continue preparing dinner. But he told me that it was nonsense, and that I needed the key. He said this as he held up the knife and flashed it in my face. I flinched backwards, lost my footing, and fell in front of the bathroom door. My sister-in-law was only a step or two behind me and nearly caught me. However, Tom, being in whatever state he was in, said that he was, So sorry I tripped. It's just these damn hallway runner rugs. They just need to be tacked down. At which point he grabbed his wife, spun her onto the floor, and without hesitation thrust the large butcher's knife through her chest and into the floor. That ought to do, he said nonchalantly, then made his way back to the kitchen. If that wasn't surreal enough, I found myself still singularly focused on the task at hand, trying to protect my nephew. So I scrambled to my feet and went for the gun in my belt. However, I must have lost it in the chaos of the moments before. It had to have fallen on the floor somewhere. But where? It could have been kicked under a door or table or... It could be under my sister-in-law's body. My eyes fell on her prone form. How could I possibly disturb her? How could I bring myself to be so animalistic, so inhuman, as to disturb a dead body? Fortunately, I didn't have to find out the answers to these questions, as she wasn't quite dead yet. The knife must have missed anything immediately fatal, and she had my gun. She had just enough strength and wherewithal to take aim at Tom, who at this point had noticed the jig was up. She fired two shots, which barely seemed to even phase him. The worst part was that, at hearing the commotion and gunshots, my nephew let himself out of the bathroom to see what was happening. Tom was charging down the hallway at this point. He was an unstoppable force, and in a moment of self-preservation, I realized this. I got up and ran for the exit. The last thing I saw was Tom wrench the gun from his wife's hand. Then, my nephew must have hit the lights as the house went dark. Finally, there was a sudden flash of light from another gunshot. I just got into my truck, started the engine, and slammed it into gear. I didn't even bother to turn on the headlights. In retrospect, this might have saved me. You can probably imagine the rest of the story. I went to the police, reported what had happened, leaving out a few key details, and they went to arrest Tom. Only by the time they got there,
they found his body laying in the shadow of a tall pine in their front yard. He was dead with no apparent cause. They couldn't even find the gunshot wounds from when my sister-in-law had shot him. They did find trace amounts of sleeping pills in his system, but nothing even remotely resembling an overdose. However, it was the best explanation they could come up with, especially since I was cleared of any charges as only Tom's fingerprints were found on the knife and only he and his wife's were found on the trigger of the gun. I have since moved away from my hometown. I am the first in my family to do so in nearly 150 years. In fact, until my departure, my family had been in that town since its founding. I am actually a descendant of the chaplain and the witch. But I couldn't live there anymore. Not for fear of the ancient spirit, however, because that is everywhere. No, I couldn't live in that town, the place where my brother's empty shell killed his family, the place where, in a desperate attempt to save my own ass, I abandoned my nephew to that awful fate. But I'm learning to deal with that. If I had stayed, there would have been nothing I could do other than die with the rest of them. I have also been trying to make sense of that night, of everything. Of course, this task would have been easier to do while in my hometown. But I have been doing some research into what happened and the history of that place. Folklore about such an entity, which I have dubbed the Shadow Spirit, is not localized to that area. In fact, almost every culture has some sort of legend about an almost human entity. What this very simply means is that no one anywhere is safe, unless you know how to protect yourself. I have already given you the best advice, and that's to play the part. Let it think you believe it's human. Otherwise, you just need to know how to identify it. What you need to understand is that it doesn't hide in the shadows. It is the shadows. I've seen it in its natural form when it isn't inhabiting a host like my brother or a tree. It's vaguely humanoid and dark as the night, and is only limited in size by the size of the shadows it moves through. I've seen it looming over tall buildings, with its fingers stretched across bridges in the shadows of the lampposts. I've seen its two pin-sized garnet red eyes sparkling in the night sky, but that's not the part to worry about. It just lives as the shadows and can thus travel through them. I don't think it can harm you in this form. What you should be concerned about is any living thing that casts no shadow, any tree, any animal, any person. When there is no shadow cast, 
the shadow spirit has taken control of the life form in question. Don't look twice. Don't look back. Just move on. And for the love of everything you hold dear, don't let your own shadow fall on the inhabited life. Otherwise, you might be next. The shadow spirit hijacks your body because it has none of its own, no physical form. But there's only room for one, and you have no chance of winning against an entity that has thousands, maybe millions of years of experience doing what it does naturally. It doesn't steal your spirit or soul, it just throws it away. So if you're afraid that it's near, just go to sleep. This is why we sleep in the dead of night, so that our spirits have a place to hide when the shadow spirit comes around. Oh, and if you ever noticed a brown pine tree in the middle of a forest of healthy green trees, run away. The shadow spirit is there and has left that tree to find you. I'll never look at shadow puppets the same way again. Though, perhaps there's something to that? Shadow puppets, maybe? Thank you to everyone that has joined us this evening. If you like what you heard, please tell your friends and family. The next episode should be posted in just about two weeks, as we will be returning to our every other Friday release schedule. There are many more stories from the Hidden Archives that have yet to be shared. We hope that you join us next time for another Glimpse Within. This has been a production of the Rhodes Collaborative Experience, LLC. Please no reproduction, duplication, or bastardization of any content without written consent from RCX or its partners. Ex Animo, Ex Tempus, in Archivum.